Hello, this is Edie. Before we get started, I wanted to make sure you knew first how much we appreciate you, and that in honor of Teacher Appreciation Week, right now at Heinemann.com, you can get 15% off and free shipping on all Heinemann professional books. This offer runs until May 11th. Head on over after the episode. Some restrictions apply. See the website for details. I'm Brett from Heinemann. This week on the podcast, we're excited to share a preview of one of Heinemann's latest audiobooks, Between the Commas, sentence instruction that builds confident writers and writing teachers. In it, author Martin Brandt uses creative and engaging strategies to build confidence in his students' writing. In this preview of Chapter 4, Marty shows the power of using the three-pillar sentence structure in a movie essay prompt and engaged his students in communicating their ideas effectively. Here now is Marty Brown. Chapter 4, Part 1. Sentence Instruction at Work. Voices They Had Not Heard Before. The Three Pillars at Work in the Classroom. One afternoon during my final semester at San Francisco State, I was killing time before class, hanging around the bullpen, an office for students in the composition program, interning as instructors for freshman composition classes. On a table in the middle of the large room lay a messy pile of random old books, probably discarded from the offices of retired professors and left there for the professional edification of new instructors. I'm a sucker for such piles, and after a few minutes of furtive poaching, I found a title that interested me, Learning by Teaching, a collection of pieces by Donald Murray, the influential teacher whose idea of teaching writing as a process has by now informed the approach of several generations of writing teachers. Skimming through the pages, reading a paragraph here and there, I eventually came across this passage from a chapter titled The Listening Eye, Reflections on the Writing Conference. Quote, It was dark as I arrived at my office this winter morning, and it is dark again as I wait for my last writing student to step out of the shadows in the corridor for my last conference. I am tired, but it is a good tired, for my students have generated energy as well as absorbed it. I've learned something of what it is to be a childhood diabetic, to raise oxen, to work across from your father at 115 degrees in a steel drum factory, to be a welfare mother with three children, to build a bluebird trail, to cruise the disco scene, to be a teenage alcoholic, to salvage World War II wreckage under the Atlantic, to teach invented spelling to first graders, to bring your father home to die of cancer. I have been instructed in other lives, heard the voices of my students they had not heard before, shared their satisfaction in solving the problems of writing with clarity and grace. End quote. I knew little of the work of Donald Murray, but I understood immediately that I had stumbled upon something that was going to stay with me forever, a platonic ideal for my own classroom practice. It would now become my goal to go home tired but a good tired, to draw energy from my students rather than to lose it, to learn from the experiences they shared with me, and through it all, to strive with them for clarity and grace. Murray has totally nailed it. 
This is what it means to teach writing in a way that promotes growth, to help our students develop abilities they didn't even know they had, so that they can hear their own voices they had not heard before. But driving home that night, I began to have my doubts, rooted in the differences between Donald Murray's experience and mine. I recalled that Murray taught at the University of New Hampshire, which to my Californian's imagination must have looked like some serene setting from a Norman Rockwell illustration or an L.L. Bean catalog. Certainly no resemblance to Independence High School, where the ambient roar of the nearby interstate is often augmented by the noise of sirens and helicopters approaching the nearby trauma center. And how many students per class did Murray have? I guessed that it was significantly less than my average of 30 per hour, which, multiplied by five classes, approaches 150 a day. And, I couldn't help but wonder, how many of his students came from immigrant families who spoke a language other than English at home? At my school, such students are not the exception, but the rule. I could see where this was going. If I wasn't careful, my skepticism would soon metastasize into a form of envy. That reactionary, easy-for-you-to-say ethos that poisons so much discourse and stymies so much discussion in professional development settings. I've encountered this resistance myself, and I understand its appeal. Teaching is hard. Teaching writing is, I'm certain, the hardest thing in education to do well. I'm still learning how to do it. Our skepticism at the advice and pronouncements of those we view as outsiders is a kind of solidarity an assertion of our dignity, a tacit understanding that no one beyond the realm of our experience can fully understand the unique challenges we face. But just because reality may fall short of some ideal doesn't mean that it's not worth pursuing. That's what ideals are for, to give us something to shoot for, even as we struggle with the harsh demands of reality. Whatever the differences between Donald Murray's experience and mine, Norman Rockwell or Childish Gambino, L.L. Bean or San Jose Blue Jeans, I still wanted to come home tired, but a good tired. I could have 100 times the students Donald Murray had, teaching in conditions far more difficult and demanding than those I face every day. English teachers all around the country teach many more students than I do. But I still want to be instructed in other lives. I would just have to find my own way to pursue this ideal within the reality of my professional life. But where would I look first? Whom should I go to? The answer is, as ever, my students. Seven Days in May It's the middle of May, and I am exhausted. There are two more weeks left in the school year, and I am crawling toward the finish line like Julie Moss in the 1982 Iron Man. YouTube it with Kleenex. Whenever the school year approaches its end, I tend to feel not elation nor even relief, but a persistent emptiness, an acute sense of my own limitations as a teacher. I think not of the joys of the approaching summer, which are wonderful, but of all the ways I have fallen short during the year. With acute 2020 hindsight, I can pick out the moments when I made exactly the wrong choice, with direct consequences for my students' experience. This year, my usual year-end fatigue has been compounded by the deaths, at the end of April, of two recent graduates, two of the sweetest young people you could ever hope to teach, a brother and sister, 
killed in a car accident as horrific as it was tragic. The young woman had been a student of mine eight years ago, yet I am surprised at how vividly I remember her, how much I recall of her development as a writer, and at how easily the tears spring to my eyes when I allow myself to think about the vicious irrevocability of it all, that so much hope and promise and love could be taken from us so cruelly by some random and unknowable car trouble on a freeway. I have to remind myself that, even with my heavy heart, my professional responsibility remains with these students in front of me, and that although they might claim to love it if we just sat around playing cards for the next two weeks, ending the year that way would shoot my credibility to hell. They would soon get bored with free time, as they do during summer vacation, concluding that, despite his previous eight months of effort, old man Brandt doesn't really care. And at this particular moment, they wouldn't be far wrong. I have to do something for their final, but I just don't have the energy, and it feels too late to take on anything substantive anyway. Some compromise is necessary. I decide on a movie essay final. Always a tricky move, since in my students' imagination, movies imply downtime and finals create stress. The work that results from this cognitive dissonance is usually pretty lousy. The downtime part of the conflict usually wins, and their submissions reveal poor effort. But I commit to the choice anyway, as one last chance to be instructed in their lives, to get them to hear their own voices they had not heard before. English 3 will watch the 2002 movie Orange County, an innocuous teen comedy about a high school senior who wants to attend Stanford University to study writing under the tutelage of his hero. AP Language will watch Roman Holiday, Dalton Trumbo's beautiful tale of noblesse oblige, starring Gregory Peck and the incomparable Audrey Hepburn. Even though I've never had much luck getting my students to write interestingly about film, this year I've got my coherence model and the Big However essay booklet by my side. The essay booklet, a trifold on 8.5 by 14 inch legal paper, is the product of a happy accident. A colleague has recently shown me a storeroom full of leftover paper and supplies from an office that had been damaged by a fire more than a decade ago. The stuff had been crammed into a room and forgotten. I had never used legal paper in my classroom before, but when I saw those alluring, dust-covered reams in the dark closet before me, I began to salivate. When it comes to teaching supplies, the line between foraging and looting is nearly non-existent. It wasn't long before my students were finding legal-sized handouts in front of them, including this booklet for The Big However, an essay that takes its name from that crucial moment when, after acknowledging the appeal of the other side, a writer drops in The Big However to signal a return to the thesis. The Big However essay is my attempt to get my students to slow down, to write with more patience and purpose, to devote entire paragraphs to things that they might ordinarily dispatch in a sentence or two. It's five paragraphs long, but it's not your usual five-paragraph essay. In this essay form, designed to address a Subject A-style prompt, each paragraph carries a distinct purpose. One, the first paragraph recapitulates some significant aspect of the text, in this case, summarizing the plot of the film to establish the writer's understanding of it. 2. 
The second paragraph is a thesis paragraph in which the students are asked to make some kind of value judgment. I ask for a paragraph rather than a thesis sentence, though it may certainly be a short paragraph, since this frees them to examine different aspects of the problem before committing to an argument, which in this case may be expressed in U-turn form. At the bottom of this section of their Big However booklet, I've provided a scaffold for a U-turn. 3. The third paragraph, on one hand, is devoted entirely to conceding the appeal of the other side, a love letter to the opposition. 4. The fourth paragraph is the big however, so named because it signals your intentions by opening with however. Here is where students advance their own argument, with examples from the text or from their own observation or experience, but only after having fully explored the appeal of the other side. 5. The fifth and final paragraph is an inward-to-the-text, outward-to-the-world conclusion. How might the coherence model work when we also expect such conventions of discourse as an introduction with body paragraphs and a conclusion? My answer is that introductions and conclusions are paragraphs too, and the coherence model can help students write better versions of each since it helps them keep in mind the needs and expectations of their reader. An introduction is really sort of a left-branching paragraph, or more, which does the same work for an essay as left-branching phrasing does for a sentence. It situates the reader. To complete the analogy, a conclusion is sort of a right-branching paragraph, or more, which does the same work for an essay as right-branching phrasing does for a sentence. It comments on the preceding point. As for the body paragraphs, think of the putative sentence in the coherence model as a topic sentence. Once it's written, the students can begin to explain what they mean following the coherent thread presented by the questions. I decide to treat the writing not as a silent two-hour grind on the last day of class, but as an interactive multi-day social affair that begins the week before we go to our final schedule. I will ask the students to write in 15 to 20 minute segments while I circulate around the class helping out as necessary. I understand that this is an unorthodox, perhaps even heretical, approach to a final exam, which should present the students with the opportunity to show independently what they've learned. But my give-a-damn for such professional expectations is broken. I want one more shot at making up for my mistakes, and one more chance to experience my favorite part of the job before heading off to summer vacation. We spend two days watching each movie. Then I hand out the prompt and the Big However booklets. We read the prompts, and I answer students' questions. Where the booklet says for paragraph one to explain the text in your own words, we will substitute, what does the reader need to know about this film? Making sure to include a money quote, my term for the most important line in a text, in the form of one of our quotation patterns, either as the opening statement or in one-two-punch form later in the intro. For the thesis paragraph, where students usually explain the extent to which they agree or disagree with the text, I ask the students to make their evaluation of some crucial aspect of their movie. Whether Princess Anne has made the right choice at the end of Roman Holiday, or whether our greatest hopes lie in our relationships, as argued by the protagonist's hero in Orange County. 
Writing days are my favorite days of teaching. If I'm doing them right, they will have a relaxed, almost effortless quality that reminds me of my happy days with Dorothy Westerhoff, my photo teacher during my junior and senior years at Silver Creek High School. Back then, I was obsessed with black and white photography. I would even start college as a photojournalism major. And if it weren't for journalism and English with Mrs. Dusa, photo would have been my favorite class of the day. The moment Mrs. Westerhoff completed attendance, I would dash into the darkroom to create my latest print. Once it cleared the rinse, oh, the rush of it all, I would dash back out with it still dripping, presenting it for inspection to Mrs. Westerhoff, who would take off her glasses, peer closely at every square inch of the picture, and then say something like, I think you'd get greater contrast with a few more seconds of exposure. Try to make this part even blacker, but maybe do a little dodging to maintain the white over here. I burned through several pages of photo paper a day. Expensive stuff, but what did I care? I was an artist at work. Writing is not as much fun as photography, but we can do things to make the task less anxiety-producing, more joyful, even. The day after I've shown the students their final, our coherence model is projected on the whiteboard as the students arrive. They also have small copies of it pasted in their composition books. I give them 20 minutes to complete the first paragraph, making a big show of starting the timer on my phone. But that's really just a ruse to get them to focus. If they don't finish the paragraph in 20 minutes, there's no penalty. At 20 minutes, I call time and tell them to take a minute or two off, then reread what they've written so far before moving on. I time the subsequent paragraphs too, but telling them that if they have something close to two paragraphs completed by the end of the day, they're in good shape. The students continue their writing, the old guy bouncing back and forth from raised hand to raised hand. 30 minutes in, Christine, a senior who has been working steadily, says, Mr. Brandt, I don't know what else to say in my thesis paragraph. I read the paragraph and then say, I think you're ready to explain what you don't mean. Try it. You know, I'm not saying this. I'm saying that. It'll sharpen your message and set you up for a nice although thesis. Another raised hand. So what do I need to do in the third paragraph again? Write a love letter to the although part of that U-turn thesis. Make it seem like you're totally into it. That'll set your reader up for the big however that starts paragraph four. Sometime toward the middle of day two, Jorge has a different kind of problem. Mr. Brand, I think I'm finished. Sounds like one of those good problems. Want me to take a look? Yeah, but I'm afraid what you're going to say. I laugh and read through the booklet. I even take off my glasses, a conscious tribute to Mrs. Westerhoff's signature move. Then, this is really good work. You should be proud of yourself. Do you want to make it even better? Jorge says, well, I mean, we got time, right? I take that for a hesitant yes. I think maybe you have more to say about this example than you're letting on. Why don't you try dropping a couple of wear dimes on Independence High School, like Independence, where the seagulls swoop down on the litter left by the students? And maybe you could find a couple of places to convert some of those sentences into ing-bombs, like right here, where you have the same subject as the focus for these two consecutive sentences. Drop an ing-bomb on that bad boy. Jorge grins and says, all right. Remember, the most fun you can have in your writing is between the commas. Raylina wants to know, Mr. Brandt, what should I do next in paragraph four? I read it and then point to our coherence model. What is up there that you think you could do next? Provide an example? Oh, hell yeah. Do it. I can hardly wait to read that. We work like this in both English 3 and AP language. 
The two planned writing days inevitably turning into three, the students chatty but focused, the sounds of their questions and laughter helping me to forget my fatigue, my discouragement, my grief. Moving around the classroom for one hour of AP language and three hours of English three, I expend energy that I didn't know I had. Precious, depleted May energy. Until I slowly realized that I had not been using it, but absorbing it from my students all along. I am thrilled with my work, reminded once again what a joy it is to teach, and to know that when I go home, I will indeed be tired, but a good tired. We don't need to wait to be transported magically, deus ex machina, into some bucolic calendar setting to experience the professional satisfaction that Murray has described. We can achieve it on our own, in our imperfect communities, our imperfect schools, with our imperfect selves leading the way for our gloriously imperfect students. Our thanks to Martin Brandt for his time today. The Between the Commas audiobook can be found on Audible, Apple Audiobooks, Google Play, or Chirp Audiobooks, or from your local library. You can learn more about how to access Heinemann audiobooks and where to purchase them from at Heinemann.com audiobooks. The Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. It is produced and edited by Steph George. Sound mixing by Steph George. Our creative producer is Lauren Audette. And our executive producer is me, Brett Whitmarsh. To learn more about the Heinemann Podcast, visit blog.heinemann.com. Thanks for listening.